You're listening to Radio ISO, the podcast bringing you notes from isolation and stories about the people we're missing. I'm your host, Emily Sargent. Today I spoke to Aisha Thomas, Assistant Principal at City Academy in Bristol, about her role as a key worker during the pandemic. It's an interesting um, story because my mother is a primary school teacher and education has always been at the forefront of her mind and she always wanted me to go into education and my response was point blank, nope, that's not for me, it's not what I wanted to do. And I was adamant I wanted a legal career so I had gone to university, studied law and I was working with a law firm. And at that time I had started doing some volunteer work with the Prince's Trust and we were able to work with young people who were in prison, particularly those who were trying to kind of get back into community. And it was about allowing them to access education and rebuild themselves. Mm. And there was a particular young man I had been working with for some time. And in our conversation, as we began to get to know each other, one day he stopped me and he paused and he said, perhaps if you were my teacher, I wouldn't be in prison today. I didn't know what to do with myself when he said that and I didn't answer him immediately because it was a really hard concept for me to understand. I was almost like, why? What does that matter? And then he began to explain to me that all of the people of authority in his life were white. All the successful people were white and the only representation he ever saw in terms of blackness was either sport, media, entertainment or crime. And unfortunately, he took the pathway of crime. What that made me realise quite quickly, particularly around representation, is not just about lack of, it's also about over. And the issue with him is that he didn't know that representation could exist in other forms. And it made me realise that working with a young person whilst they were already in the system was far too late. And it was extremely important for me to get to a young person as early as they possibly could. Mm. Because there isn't uh, a job in the world that doesn't start without a teacher everybody has to be taught something. So the role of the educator is vital. And so for me, it was a massive decision to leave my legal career behind, but it was the absolute best decision I could have made because now I'm able to get to young minds when they need it, not when it's too late. Mm. And what, when when your mum was encouraging you to go into education, do you think she was thinking along any of the similar lines to that or did she have another reason was it just because it was her passion it was what she loved I think it was a combination of both I think nobody goes into teaching for the money nobody goes into teaching because it's just a job you have to have a passion it's a servitude it's a dedication to educate young minds it's an absolute commitment but I think more importantly my mum also was aware about of the lack of representation the lack of black people specifically within the education system and she really felt that I had a role to play I guess she was right I just wasn't ready to accept it Mm. do you do you think you're similar to your mum yes very (laughs) very similar to my mum I think we're both um, advocates, we are both very passionate and we, we like to um, campaign for what is right. And I think similarly, we both have the same passion for making sure that people have the right opportunities in life. Mm. What, what's the element of the job that you take the most pleasure or satisfaction from now? I think 
being an assistant principal is really vital because it's not just about being a teacher, it's also showing leadership. And being an assistant principal means that I am able to not only deliver to the children in my school and my community, but I'm able to have a ripple effect. And it means I can look at structure and policy and I can look at curriculum mm. and my impact is much more far reaching. And that for me is priceless. I am the only black assistant principal in my school. And currently I'm only the only black female teacher in my school. That has a massive impact on the children that I serve, particularly as my school has a population of over 85% BME. So in our school, you know, that representation for black, Asian and minority ethnic communities is vital. Mm. And I get to represent that for them. And when you have conversations with your kids on that subject, what what do they say to you in terms of the importance for them of having a teacher who, you know, they feel they can see themselves reflected in? What's the impact for them? It's really interesting because I've done a number of pieces on this particular topic. And I've spent a lot of time working with young people to make sure that their voices are heard. And I spoke to two different students, particularly on this very issue. And I spoke to a white female student who said to me, Miss, it's so vital that you are the person standing at the front of the classroom. Because as a white person, for me to see a black woman, so I have that kind of gender representation, but also to see a black female, you are showing me that some of the history that we have been taught this idea that I'm greater than because of my skin colour allows me to see that actually black people are just as valuable, they contribute just as much and they are a valuable part of society and it's important that we all get to immerse in each other's cultures, understand each other because if you weren't stood here miss, would I ever have this knowledge? Would I ever gain this experience? Probably not in my home life. So you play a massive part not just in my education but the education of my family because I can go back and share this with them. Mm. That was vital, and that's from a white female. From a black female perspective, the other student said, Miss, you represent me. When I look at you, I see my mum, my sister, my auntie, but more importantly, I see hope. Hope that by the time my generation are here, we're not having the same fight and struggle that you had. Mm. Yeah, and and I need to check myself because the way that I frame that question, you know, racism is a white person's problem, and as you say, it's critical for white students to see that black individuals are, you know, intelligent and strong and, and should be in leadership roles. Um, so, so yeah, it, 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 it's equally important, probably, for, you just know, as, for all just students. As. Absolutely. It's not a black and white issue. And I think sometimes I, I get a little bit frustrated when people say, oh, your black students must love it. It's mm. not for the black students specifically. Yeah. It's for children globally. How do we ever get to a point where there is true equality if we continually say that that's for you and that's for them? The white children, the Asian children, the black children all need to see the value in each other. They can only do that when we show them as adults that we value each other and we value the contributions that we all make to society. Mm -hmm. And me being in that role begins to show them a different system. We need to spend much more time focusing on the development of early years. When they get to me at secondary school, it's almost too late sometimes because we're then trying to undo a thinking that has already been created. Mm -hmm. That period of time between zero and five is so vital because that's when your brain is most active, it develops faster, 
than any other time in a child's life. And so your education, your relationships, all of those elements are so important because you are a sponge at that point in time. And when you just look at the milestones, when a child is three months, they can already identify the racial structure of their caregivers and will automatically be drawn to those people. And then when you think by the time they're two, they can already recognize race and therefore change their behavior, you have to think about how vital that period of time is because that's when children are getting that information. And there's been many, many, many um, experiments on this. For example, you could Google the doll test and you see that there are children, particularly black children, who were given a black doll and a white doll. And they give all of these negative descriptions of the black doll already at that age. And yet, when you begin to question them as to who they are, you see almost the emotion drain out of their faces when they realize that they're the black doll. And all those negative words they had used relate to them. Mm. And so it's really important that we encourage those young children to play with people from all diverse communities because they will begin to choose their playmates and their friends based on race at that age. And if we don't have those conversations about adult racial issues at that time, those children will just go on with the same legacy. And what you find is research shows that white children at that age will already gravitate to other white children and will exclude the child of colour. And they will do that because of the rhetoric that they hear at home, even if it's not intentionally racist. But what it will do is create a division. So I don't know if you've ever seen it before, but there's been videos of people giving, for example, a white child a black doll for Christmas. And that child goes completely crazy because they don't want that doll. Well, you can't tell me that that young child has that level of racism within them already without somebody planting the seed as to how they should see that image. Mm -hmm. And yet black children grow up every day having to have white dolls because that's what the supermarket provides. Mm -hmm that's what's accessible. So I think it's something really important about making sure that at the earliest opportunity when you are in childhood development, children learn about different communities, different cultures, and that racial superiority is absolutely stripped so that those children see each other as they should, which is as human beings, rather than you're white and black and better than you and you're subordinate, and so therefore I can't play with you. Because mm -hmm. that then carries on and only gets worse and compounded as they get older. Yeah, I mean, it, it makes complete sense to me and I think you're totally right. And it's it's crazy that, you know, these conversations about racism existing, you know, people are saying, well, you know, talk to your child when they're sort of 10 or 11. And it's, so, it's so embedded by that point. Yeah, it's far too late. You've got to think your brain develops by seven. By seven, you've got all of your belief systems in place. It's also like on a philosophical level I just find it so strange when parents say you know well, the child's not old enough to be talking about like these are adult issues it's like well they're not because they're affecting no. the child when they're five years old so why shouldn't you it's almost like gaslighting them by sort yes. of saying this 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 isn't a thing that we need to talk about yet Edu educators have a powerful job to do and it's not just about the teaching in the classroom, it's holistically about the preparation you give to that child that will help them with the rest of their future and the person that they become. So if you do not sow the right seeds from day one, it is so hard to change it. And it's why I'm more interested, in all honesty, in working with young people and changing their attitudes than I am with adults. Because adults are much harder to change because you're changing ingrained views that are in the fabric of your soul. That's a hard thing to do. 
think he found that um, of 1,346 teachers that only 26 were black in Bristol and 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 I wondered whether you thought in the time that you've been a teacher there had been any improvement in diversity. You can recruit more people in the profession but what are you doing to keep those that are in the profession from leaving mm. and that's where you have a problem. Do I think that the opportunities in teaching are getting better and there's more awareness and more opportunity Yes. Do I think all the structural systemic barriers have been moved to ensure people can successfully get there and stay there? No. Mm -hmm. And that is going to take a complete structural change of the education system to see a long lasting change in structure, culture and attitude towards um, black people within the education profession for it to change dramatically. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important to understand that as much as we, and I say we as in black people, can want to make change, we cannot do it in isolation. Mm -hmm. Because there are many rooms and in many boards and in many you know, conversations in Parliament and many conversations within the Department for Education that we are not in. Mm -hmm. So we will not be able to make the structural change in isolation. You need what is deemed to be now white allies and those who are actively anti-racist who want to use their position of power and privilege to change the system. And that will come from white people. It's not going to come from black people alone. And that's why there has to be collaboration and true unity. Do you think that this is a key moment for change, this kind of rise in conversation about being actively anti-racist, you know, taking a seat at the table to try to make a change in terms of, you know, white people stepping up and doing, I was going to say more, but in lots of cases, just something. Um, do, you, do you think we're at a real turning point right now? Let's be frank. This isn't the first time this has happened. Mm. This isn't the first moment of activism. This isn't the first time black people specifically have protested and tried to have, a, have an uprising to make it clear to society how they're being treated. Even if you just look at Bristol alone, you've got 1963 with the bus boycott, looking at the way black people were treated in terms of job roles. Mm. You know, later you have the St. Paul's riots looking at police brutality. This in itself is not new. What is new, or what I think has changed the narrative in this moment, is that we're in a pandemic. Mm. And what the pandemic has done is it has given an awareness and amplified voices in a way that probably would not have happened, but for people being at home, being on screen time, and having the opportunity to have the headspace to engage. Mm -hmm. That's what's different. So the energy does feel different. I do feel that people are galvanized. I do feel that people would want to see things change. But my worry, and this is a real honest worry with you, is that it's a trend. Mm. It's trendy to put hashtag Black Lives Matter. It's trendy to put up a few posts on your, your LinkedIn or your Facebook or whatever social media you use. It is trendy to be having conversation. My question is, and always will be, when the lights go off, when the black squares are taken down, when people stop kneeling, then what? Mm. And that's the only time we will truly know if this moment has really meant anything, because it's going to take time. 
we're going to have to see whether the legacy stays there and people keep doing this work or will they get bored and move on to the next issue. You have to want to see change and to see change means I need to see my privilege and to see my privilege means I might have to give something up. You then have to ask yourself, do you really want to give up your position of privilege? I wondered how in your role um, at the school, how, how it's been for you, how you've coped and how it has felt as an experience. So I find it quite interesting when people say schools are opening, we never closed. And I, as an assistant principal, has, have had to make the decision whether I wanted to make that commitment to be there, and I did. It was a hard decision to make because deciding to be there on the front line for the communities that I serve, it meant that I had to make a choice to put my own children at risk. Because I'm a single parent, it's just me and my children that live here. And because of the situation, I couldn't leave my children with anyone else. So the only way in which I could go to work meant that my children also had to access a provision at school in order for me to do the job I needed to do. And that was a hard decision to, ha to make and a hard decision to, to kind of discuss through with my children. But the actual experience in itself has been very overwhelming. I think at first it was grief. The grief of walking into a building that's usually bustling with 900 children, so excited to see you and engage with you, to them being in a hallway which was had an eerie silence, mm -hmm. that had a handful of children who couldn't stay at home because they were that vulnerable. And having to somehow make peace with the normal that I've known for a very long time. But quickly, it was all systems go. And you realise that there were things that you just had to put in place quite immediately in order to make sure your children were safe. So one of the first things I did is I was involved in the food box deliveries for our young children, particularly because many of our children didn't have access to food supplies. Many of the parents had lost their jobs or been furloughed. And it meant that even a simple meal was difficult for those families. Some of them had to shield so they couldn't get out. They couldn't get online to make orders with supermarkets. They didn't have the free school bill vouchers from the uh, government. So what it meant is I had to do hundreds and hundreds of home visits, socially distanced, to make sure that children could get the food that they needed. But in addition to that, we were able to provide things like period um, poverty supplies. So making sure that there was sanitary wear that was available to young children and their parents, particularly when you had households that had several generations of women that really needed these supplies. Mm. So that was really important that they were able to have access to that. In addition to that, I've been able to support by loaning out laptops that belong to the school, but to ensure that children could access their learning. I think sometimes when you are in a very privileged background and all of a sudden somebody says, oh, do your learning online, you think that's quite simple. What if you don't have the internet? What if you don't have a laptop? And so it was a combination of providing technological resource as well as creating packs of work, which I was able to print out and get delivered to students, be it personally doing the deliveries or getting those sent out in the post. So that was something that was really important to keep the education alive and that first for learning. Mm. I've also done a number of check-in phone calls, so just kind of being there as a voice, somebody to talk to, a recognisable connection to the outside world for parents that really needed it. You don't realise how much conversation is needed and the ability to converse is vital. We as humans naturally gravitate to companionship. So to then not have the ability to connect with anybody outside of your world, particularly when you live in 
some of them, high-rise blocks of flats, you have no garden, you have no way of association, that phone call was important. Mm. But I think the biggest challenge throughout this process, and I guess the part that I've taken the most serious, has been doing those social distance home visits, being able to get eyes on children who I was so worried could be lost in the system. And whether that's because of child sexual exploitation, whether that was because of criminal child exploitation, these children, I needed to see them. I needed them to see my face. I needed them to remember Miss Thomas has not given up on them. And that even though the media is saying all of these things, we still care. That's priceless for me and a risk, but a risk that I had to take. What's the response from them when you turn up? Oh, it's been absolutely awesome. I think the hardest part is that funny kind of awkward oh miss I just I just naturally want to run and hug you but but I can't and that's not appropriate and I shouldn't be doing that and so I have to stand here and we have to kind of do virtual high fives but you know the idea of seeing someone that that they recognize that has made a sacrifice to come to their house just to look at them and make sure that they are okay Mm. smiles smiling from ear to ear beaming with elation and happiness just that bit of connection reminding them that we are still here reminding them that that connection is still alive, reminding them that they are still valued, somebody still cares, that's priceless. You can't Mm. buy that. And I think that was really important for those children. And they they were able to send emails. We had one particular family say, you know, sending us a food parcel with the ingredients to make a pizza not only became food for us, but also an activity. It gave us something to do at home as a family. It's allowing us to reconnect and build our sibling relationships. Those are things that are incidental. Um, We didn't plan for them to happen, but even by doing that, it was bringing families together. How, when you were saying that you'd had some like phone check-ins with parents and how, how have they been feeling? How have they been coping? It's been a mixed bunch. So you have some parents who have found it much easier than others. So when you hear a parent saying, yeah, you know, we're okay, we're fine. We've got a regular food supply things are strong at home and I'm coping with the home learning. When you hear that, you feel reassured. But when you hear parents who break down on the telephone because they just want this to be over, because Mm. mentally it's such a drain on them and their families, that's hard. That's hard to hear. And sometimes you just have to listen. Mm. Listening is sometimes all they need. And my mum always has a saying where she says, you know, God gave you two ears and one mouth because you need to listen twice as much as you speak. And just being able to listen, I didn't change that person's circumstance. I can't wave a a, a wand and end the pandemic. But what I can do is allow you to feel heard. And so regular phone calls and regular check-ins, it doesn't change their circumstance, but it makes them aware that somebody's listening. And how how have your own kids been feeling about this? Like, have um, have they been worried or anxious or do you think they've coped okay? been a mixed bunch so of emotions I would say my children are very different so my eldest who is 12 he's very academic and very focused so his primary focus was mummy you need to keep me busy so he's had a combination of going to school part-time and also having a tutor and that's really helped him to keep strengthened and grounded and that's been great for him What's been difficult for him is that he can actually tune in with what's happening in the world. And so it poses questions for him, perhaps questions he wouldn't have had before. So he was walking to school one day and um, a police officer stopped him. And he said even the approach made his heart beat fast. 
because of what had happened and what he had seen in the media. And then immediately he, you know, he zipped down his coat and said, look, 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 I've got my uniform, I'm going to school. And he said, mummy, I shouldn't have to feel like that. I shouldn't have to feel that because of the way I look in the area that we live in, immediately my heart is pounding and straight away I've got to kind of find a defense mechanism to justify why I'm walking down the road. Mm. He shouldn't have to go through that at 12. And yet that's a preparational process he's had to go through. That's hard. With my youngest now, who's nine, he seems less affected in the sense that he's a homebody anyway. He's quite introverted. So for this him, for this experience, is amazing. He loves it. He quite happily never go back to school. He loves it, literally. However, it's made him much more tactile. So he always wants to touch, hug. He wants to like stroke your skin because I think the lack of contact with the world has affected him. But I think the hardest part for him is not understanding what's going on. So when he watched the news the other day, he saw three clips within 60 seconds. And this is the dangerous thing about the news because there was no sensitivity warning. Within 60 seconds, he saw George Floyd on the floor, the still image. He saw the army in America going down a street where they then shouted, light it up and started firing into homes in a particular neighborhood. And then he saw the image of police cars running over protesters. He saw those three things in 60 seconds. Just imagine what trauma that causes to the childhood development of a nine-year-old brain. He then got emotional and said, mummy, why are they hurting us? What what have we done? And I couldn't answer him. How do I answer that question? Yeah, I mean, it's it's heartbreaking to think of a, a child watching that and to and to be internalising that already at his age. It's been a difficult experience, but I think what it has done, which it has been really beautiful, it's allowed them to build a sense of brotherhood that mm. they never would normally, because one's in secondary, one's in primary, they both have very different activities, so that's a beautiful thing to witness. But also, I see my children now, and when I say see, I don't mean see as just visually, I mean I see who they are. I'm hearing what their favorite foods are, I'm hearing what music they like. We're playing games we just never made time to play because we were always so busy. Mm, that's really nice. So that's, that's a blessing, that's definitely a blessing within all of this madness. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and how, how are you, you know, because it feels like you've been doing so much for so many people. How, how are you feeling at this point? I would be lying to you if I didn't say to you I feel lonely. I think being a single person in this moment is hard. I don't have that sense of companionship. I don't have that go-to person to share the burden with. And I, and I don't have that person to kind of tell me at the end of the day, even if they're just saying it for comfort, it's going to be all right. Mm-hmm. And so I've had to be really conscious about making sure that my bucket of well-being is full. Mm. And whoever I seek that from, whether that's FaceTime with friends and family, um, I've had the most amazing friends who have sent me cards, they've sent me flowers, they've sent me um, letters, just to remind me that although I'm on my own physically, I'm not on my own mentally and spiritually. So that's been vital to, to helping to kind of keep me balanced. But it has been an absolute emotional roller coaster. There's been days where I've just cried cried because I just don't know where I'm going to get the strength from to continue and then I look at my sons and I say there's the strength now keep going and that's what you have to do
Is there anyone in particular that you've been missing seeing in person? Yes, I'm missing my mum. I miss my mum so much. Like, literally, even saying it to you now, my eyes are filling with water. Like, I miss my mum. I haven't seen my mum since the 29th of February. And I see my mum all the time. And, mm. you know, us travelling back and forth and her coming down here and us going up there is the norm. And my mum has an amazing relationship with her grandsons. And so to know that we can't, talk and converse and to hug and laugh and do all the things that we would do normally mm-hmm. that's hard and you know my mum's had to shield because she has um, a, a medical condition that affected her and so she really had to shield for the 12 weeks she couldn't come out of her house for that initial period of time and so you know us going down there would only put her at risk even for a social distance you know walk in the park we couldn't do it and so that's the person I guess both, you know, the children and myself were pining for. We can't wait to be reunited. But I guess we just need to hold on a little bit longer until those restrictions are lifted. Mm-hmm. How would you describe your mum to someone who hadn't met her before? She is absolutely awesome. My mum is a pillar of strength. She has a sense of calm about her that allows you to feel so comfortable to engage with her. She's so approachable in her manner and her nature, but what she also has is a fierce passion in her heart. And when she allows you to feel so comfortable in her experience, but at the same time allows you to understand her advocacy, that's a skill that even I'm still trying to learn and navigate because she just has a way with people. She's a natural born entertainer, but at the same time, she knows how to get across an important message. And so I stand on her shoulders only in hope I could ever be half the woman that she is. She was grown up with her mum and her, her grandmother seeing signs that said, no blacks, no Irish, no cats, no dogs. That is her legacy. My mum is in an environment where she was the only black person in her school. And when she wanted to be in a play, she was told she could only play the role of a slave. So fully understand where that starts from in terms of your psyche and your thinking. Mm. Now, when she started at schools and she kind of tried to explain to them about her experience and where she was coming from, she had teachers and head teachers say to her, leave your blackness at the door. Do not bring your culture here. Imagine your principal or your head teacher telling you to leave your culture at the door as if you can undip your black skin, hang it up and pick it up at the end of the day. And so that's had a fundamental impact on her experiences. And unfortunately, she has suffered racism in every job role she had to the point that she ended up moving to London. My mum no longer lives in Bristol Mm -hmm. because she wanted to work in a much more diverse environment. So would you say she's she's a, a, a continuing source of inspiration for you, you know, in, in the work that you're doing day to day? Absolutely. She's uh, ever passionate. She's relentless. She's tenacious and she's resilient. And her passion and enthusiasm, not just to help me, but to help all of those who are around her to take the time to educate and explain, to challenge, but also to be a strength that can't be underestimated. And Mm -hmm. to do that from the traumatic baseline where she starts, she's phenomenal. What do you think it's going to feel like the first time you are able to see her in person? 
it's going to be so emotional. We're, we're going to cry. I fully <laughs> know we're going to cry because I just feel like there's an energy that my mum has with my boys that is just so priceless. And I think to see, particularly my youngest, the nine-year-old, he loves his grandma. And to see her hug him and kiss him and tell him how much she loves him, that's just something that you can't do over a screen. So to see them embrace will be priceless and I can't wait. What do you think it's, do you think having two really strong women in their lives has affected your boys in any particular way? I think it's been interesting for them because I think often there is this idea that if women are at the forefront of your upbringing that sometimes that might not be helpful and stereotypically you might not be as strong or you you know stereotypically you might not be into boys things and actually I think it's created a balance because uh you know I have a great relationship with my dad I have an amazing relationship with my brother and the children um, have a great relationship with their father. We are able to co-parent very well. And I think for them to see that they have such a strong unity that shows both masculinity and also femininity, it's awesome. And they can see not only two women in their family that's doing very well, but two black women who are striving to advocate for their futures. It gives them role models to look up to and ones that they are very proud of. Mm. That's such a wonderful thing. I wondered whether there was anything you'd never said to your mum before that you would like to. I think I've said lots to my mum before, but I think she's never heard me say publicly how proud I am of her. And I want my mum to know that through all of her pain, through all of her trauma, through all of the ups and downs she's had to experience, and for all the difficult decisions she's had to make about the way she's raised her children, I am totally grateful, I completely understand, and I am proud to call her mum. like to tell us about someone you're missing we'd love to hear from you get in touch at radioisopodcast at gmail.com or on instagram at radioisopod.com